Well, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. I tell you, you know, uh, which I don't know if Michael knows this. I think you're preaching next week. Yes. Okay, good. Uh, over the next few weeks, I tell you, you really, you're lucky because I was looking at, our, at, at the next few chapters of Exodus. <sighs> I've got my work cut out for me. Like, like I, I actually, I love that part about preaching in books because I'm forced to talk about things that are uncomfortable and I don't, like, know how to talk about them without, like, and how to, like, not everything. I just go, yeah, I know absolutely how to apply this to the culture today. And I'm that, no, no, there are some things like, no, like, what am I going to do? Like, I, I need to understand this in a way. How can I make us understand what they were going through or why that we would be? T- like, for instance, like, we're talking about, uh, you know, we got through the Ten Commandments, um, and, and uh, we're, we're talking about the law of altars today because, like, r- really right after um, some of these things, there's just some tough subjects right after the Ten Commandments, right? There's, there's, like, these chunks of Scripture that are right after the Ten Commandments that God is still speaking. They don't make the Ten Commandments, but they're, like, laws about how to do things in the way they're living. And, and there's, like, tough subjects. Like, so for this one, right, is law. We're going to talk about altars today and, and some of the things that God established early on about altars um, but these next few weeks that I have to preach, like the next one is probably the worst one. Cause I've talked about slavery and it's not like how God's going to come in and abolish it. So that, there's some like, it's a tightrope there. And, uh, but then you get into some good things like reconciliation, restitution, right? Social justice, how to deal with the Sabbath, even festivals, how to, how to party, right? Right. Like how to celebrate correctly. That's like, we don't think about that stuff, but yeah, it's there and how to do ceremonies and stuff. And right. And so like God is like laying down like this baseline of laws on the back end of the Ten Commandments to deal with the children of Israel. And it's hard stuff. I mean, even for me, uh, it, it begs some hard, serious questions and uh, we're going to have to ask them. It doesn't mean we're going to get all the answers. Like we understand that, right? Like I think there are going to be plenty of things in the Bible. I, I don't understand. I mean, I, I like, uh, I don't understand how there can be a devil. Like I, I'm just, I'm just saying. Like there's some, I think some really valid questions. Like okay, so then angels have free will if if there's a devil. So sin can ex- it, sin could take place technically amongst the angels in heaven. Think about that. I don't know. I don't know how that works. Like I'm, I'm like Paul. I see in part now, and I'm just gonna have to be good with seeing in part. Right? There's gonna be some things in my life. I'm just gonna like. I don't know. I'm not God. I don't have that wisdom. I don't know how he works. You know, I don't, I don't understand it. Um, there are some, some things that just, you're just not going to get a crystal clear explanation on why is this the way it is. And uh, I think that's hard for us. I think if we can't wrap our brain around God sometimes, then we struggle to believe in God at sometimes. Uh, because if you really think about it, I think only God requires us to have the faith to believe in the invisible. I mean, think about it. We believe in miracles where most people would say, but that's like statistically an anomaly. You are correct. That's why it's called a miracle. Uh, but I believe in the God who makes miracles. I believe that it's possible. I want to believe that if we pray that God will hear me. And I think there's some valid things in the Bible that talk about those things, right? So I'm not sure that we're ever going to get, like in this life, 100% understanding of what is going on with God, Right? But there are some things I think the Bible makes clear about that. And, and just right now, stay in Exodus 20, but Isaiah 55, 8, 9, we're, we're going to start here for me at least. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declared the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So I think as, I think as we discover together these hard conversations that, that we must do with this thought in mind, that God's ways are not our ways. Okay, it's like when I try to explain to somebody uh, uh, the idea, like how messed up you already are living, like, like not to say America is not the greatest country. It is the greatest country, but democracy and republic have skewed you to some degree. And, and here's why, because in heaven, there doesn't exist. 
So the mentality is from the time you're born, you think your voice matters. And it does here. <laughs> but in heaven, uh, you don't get like we're not going to have a vote. <laughs> you understand that, right? Like it's a theocracy. God's way is the way. God's way is just and true and right. And the Bible's clear that God wants the best for you and he loves you and his grace and mercy makes a way. And the reason you can believe that now is because you've come to know that it's true and you will trust him when you get there. Uh, but make no mistake, like if anybody thinks like they're going to have a vote in heaven or if they're going to have like their, their, the things they say are going to matter more somehow than God, that's just not going to be that way. And I can tell you that it's hard to take that lens off of us it's hard. That's why we've, you know, there's a lot of things to the American culture that makes it very hard to preach the gospel. Where do you think consumer church came from? You think it came from Iraq? You think it came from freaking like Middle East church? You think, I mean, when they look at us, why do you think missionaries are coming over here? They look at us and like, that's a joke. Like this Christianity is like a joke. You have all this money and you do all these things, but Christianity's not growing at all. Like, there's these churches, we hear about them all the time. I heard a, another story all the time. You know, I can't tell you how many stories I hear all the time because that's one of the big things. The church loves to be known for what they do. And the problem with that translating is, like, this one church, they paid off, like, I think it was a big deal. They, they had a surplus of funds, so they used their surplus of funds, when I say, for, to, like, 2 or $3 million, and they paid off people's medical debts. And so people, like, you know, they got this story out. You know, look at this church. It paid off the medical debts, right? But nobody's more saved in that town. No, I'm not saying we shouldn't do something like that. What I'm saying is the things that we're doing for outreach and evangelism haven't been working like we think they should work, right? Which should make us go back and relook at what we're doing at times. But I'm telling you, the reason it doesn't make it work, it's like the Matthew 6. Until, I, until God showed me once I came here, honestly, I did church like everybody else does church. I didn't see anything wrong with, hey, we did an outreach, and I want everybody to see what we did so that they would know we're here. Because if we don't tell them we're here, they're never going to know. I didn't trust God. In that part, you know, he says, if you do this in private, I will see you and reward you. I didn't trust God with that. I didn't trust God with that. And I'm not mad at other churches that do that. I think it's not scriptural, but I also think it's the reason why we don't see the growth in the church like we do. We haven't trusted God with his own structures and his own building and his own church and his own. We said, God, you're not a really good pitchman for your church. You're not a good front man, God. This whole keep it quiet, you're doing great things, God. We should want everybody to know in, in the whole meantime. Can you imagine Jesus? Can you imagine this? How many times did you hear him go, just don't tell anybody? But wait a minute, Jesus, if we do tell people, if we do tell people, you realize they will come to you, right? You can grow your church like this. Remember like 5,000. At what point, at some point, think about this with Jesus. At some point when he's preaching those 5,000 and then he says something like, man, whoever drinks my blood and eats my flesh is, is, is a part of me, Right? And, and the whole time, like, what did it say? And then many, like, walked away, like, confused at what he had said. Can you imagine? If you're his deacon buddies, you're going, you got to tone that down. <laughs> like, we had a movement going until you killed it. <laughs> like, I mean, he's like the ultimate movement killer. Because at the end of the day, only John actually stayed and watched him die on the cross. Not even the ones that were like Peter, his number one guy, right? I mean, it was John that was there. So I'm... Um, so, if, if you watch Jesus and you watch how God does things, it's counterintuitive to us. Why? Because of our upbringing. Because you've watched how we build empires here. We don't build empires by keeping... You think the NFL... Can you imagine if they ever advertised? Come on. You wouldn't have sports figures. you make the money they make. Right? If you want to be successful, you tell everybody. That's the way of the world. The, the unfortunate part is the church is caught up in some of that. Right? But here's... What I, I say all that to say this is that this is why I don't understand it. I, this is the part of us where we, when we look at some of these things, we're going to see some of these things, the laws of altars, the laws of slavery and, and restitution. And some of these things are going to be like, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. And then some of these things are like, I don't understand that at all. Like, I, I get it. I get it. But some of us, we're always going to be skewed a little bit. It takes a lot. Why do you think Moses had to come out of the Egyptian culture for 40 years before he got to go back? God had to like get everything out of him so he could be a blank slate again and actually be teachable because he was smarter than most. I mean, he'd been raised under in the Egyptian house of the pharaohs. Think about that. He knew math. He knew how to probably read and write, which was a whole lot more than probably they did. Nobody else is writing the Ten Commandments down, right? I mean, it's him that wrote the laws. He writes the first four or five books of the Bible, right? Why? Because he's educated. But God had to get rid of some of that education and downplay some of that 
so he could be usable. He could be usable. This is, this is the thing that we're up against, right? And, and I think like, like uh, one of the things I wrote down in my notes was that I think like what God's doing right here, God is turning the ship for the Israelites. For 400 years, they lived under the Egyptians. All of their ways, all of their cultures. For 400 years, it had mingled their culture in with the Egyptian culture. Make no mistake, there is no culture alive that, cannot, that does not integrate a little bit of the other cultures into it. Just that's the way it is. That's the way it is. Even the American church has Americanized the church of Jesus. I mean, it just has. Um, but I, I do think um, and he was doing it as slowly as he could. You know, because this ship is not some little boat that if we turn it on a U, it's really fun. We could throw all the kids off the tube. It's not like one of those ships. It's more like an aircraft carrier, right? You can't turn that thing hard. It just don't work like that. So you turn it a little bit by little bit. It takes you miles to make a U-turn, but eventually it does turn. But he's turning it, I believe, in such a way like it hurts at first because you realize he's turning. But after a while, you get used to the turn, and eventually you're coming back. And, and I, I believe this is what is really happening. Um, and, you know, let's, let's one thing else. Let's also remember where all of this is going to be said this morning. Moses is standing up on the mountain, right? This is where just last week was Ten Commandments. All the people are far down below. Okay, just get a picture of it. They can see this thick, dark cloud approaching Moses. Terrifying. There was thunder and lightning and the sound of a trumpet, and the mountain was smoking, the Bible says. Serious stuff is going on, okay? Uh, while Moses might have kept his cool, the rest of the group, they're terrified. It says they backed up even. Smart move. Um, and this is our setting for God speaking uh, we also we must remember the truth about God's people this time. All this oppressive and idolatrous is morally corrupt society. So this is where all this thing is coming from. So we're going to begin in verse 22, and I'm going to read to 26. And this is all we're going to deal with today. And then we'll jump into uh, 21 uh, uh, when I preach next. Exodus chapter 20, verses 22. And I, I believe it's through the end. And the Lord said to Moses... Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourself that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Just real quick. Father, illuminate your word to us right now, God. Father, um, I believe this is the message that you've given me. May it be conveyed in such a way that it would illuminate their steps. In Jesus' name, amen. So allow me a little bit of room to break some of this down piece by piece. So hopefully we can get a more clear picture of what is happening here. We're going to start with verse 22 uh, and really God's desire to be known. God is, desires to be known, right? A.W. Tozer was right. <clears throat> one of the quotes you hear me talk about all the time from him because I think it's one of the most profound. Uh, in one of the books, he says, God is waiting to be wanted. God is waiting to be wanted. He wants to be known. After laying down the Ten Commandments to Moses, his next sentence is, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. So, so now you've got this physical, you know, you, you have this physical thing that you've seen God or you've been as close to seeing him as possible, right? Uh, uh, that which is invisible now seemingly uh, has become tangible. He's become made himself known. Now you have this visual image of what God is. You didn't see a person necessarily, but uh, you saw the clouds gather. You heard the trumpet uh, beckon. You saw the lightning and the thunder, and Moses walked right up in it. You know, and he and it like comes every time he approaches the mountain. The cloud comes over, and then he comes back down, and then it goes away. Like it's terrifying stuff, man. Um, you know, according to scripture, 
the greatest glory that men can ever know is being able to see the Lord or have this encounter with him. Jeremiah once talked about it in Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 and 24. He says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, declares the Lord. Right? That there is no other glory under the sun than that of knowing God. The one who knows God knows, has the greatest riches. Period, is what he's saying. The one who knows God is wiser than the wisest person, is what he's saying, right? Knowing God, according to our Bibles, is greater than, than wisdom, than strength and power, than greater than all the riches on the earth. Um, and I paraphrased all that because the last part reveals the heart of God. It says, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And that, where do you think Tozer uh, gathered the idea that God is waiting to be wanted? Because the Bible says he delights in being known. He wants to. He's happy about it. God, you, know, you ever met a person that's just happy to meet new people? Welcome to God. Right? God is one of those guys, right? He's, he, he wants to be known. He, he wants us to draw close to the mountain. He wants us to experience that. He wants to reveal himself. He wants, uh, 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 he wants the Israelites to, that are far away to see that he's not a far away God. He's not some God you pray to and he's like on a vacation somewhere and one day he'll come back home and, and save you. He's not that way. Moses in Deuteronomy 4.47 boasted this, and I think this is an awesome statement for a guy who walked with God and really describing this situation. He says in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 4.47, for what great nation is there that God is so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? He said, whenever we call upon him, he's there. Praise God, right? I mean, think about that. That should apply for all of us today, right? What's so great a nation is as good as us that when we call upon God, he shows up. Come on. That's important because God isn't just showing up to say, hey, it's time for change. Right? He isn't a God that's leaving them in the desert to fend for themselves. Up until this point, he hadn't laid down any laws, right? I mean, this has actually been a little bit. He hadn't laid down any laws. Hey, I'm not trying to change you overnight here. Okay, he, they, they, they walk away from Egypt, right? And he starts taking care of what? This should be a good lesson for evangelism. He starts doing what? Taking care of their immediate needs. First thing he does. First thing he does, he takes care of their immediate needs. They were thirsty, he secures water for them. They were hungry, he produces uh, manna and quail for them. He, he has saw to their needs daily, and now he gives them a set of laws that are solely designed to teach them what sin is, right? And how deep their depravity is, right? Uh, how holy God is and what it means to be set apart and what it means to be consecrated and sacred. That's a huge leap, I know. Uh, but look at the progression. He didn't just lay down the law as soon as they got out. He expressed his maternal love, right? A parental love. And he physically showed them how much he loved them, how much he cared for them by taking care of them. And it was nothing like they'd ever seen before. What God had they ever seen do that? The gods of the Egyptians surely weren't the gods that were saving them. And after the giving the Ten Commandments, he furthers the conversation to deal with some things. The first thing he addresses is if he knows it's going to happen anyway, right, is you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make gods of gold. And when he's talking about the altars, right? Now, to me, in my opinion, this is a rehashing of the first two commandments. God says in the first commandment, there are no other gods but me. The second one, he says, you shall not make any graven image, right, to worship, period. What he's saying is if you could see the God, it's not God. That's what he's saying. So it begs the idea that the children of Israel are really going to struggle here. He's got to bring it up twice, guys. If you've got to bring it up twice in the Bible, it's a struggle. Right, so much so, uh, I do believe that, that what he is speaking here is a bit more specific in the sense of where. Right In the Ten Commandments, he made sure to express that there are none, no carved images. Right, It's super clear. However, God is now elaborating a little further in that there aren't to be any other statues of gods or precious metals at his altars. At his altars. Now, I couldn't help but think that God doesn't want distractions at the altar with this. It's kind of what it is, really. He doesn't want any confusion about what the altar is and what it's for, right? Because the altar has purpose. Let's, let's just, that's where it comes from. The altar has purpose. We know he is talking about altars because the very next verse says, an altar on earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it. So we know what he's talking about when he talks about the gold and the silver. We know he's specifically saying none of these things, none of this gold, carved silver, carved gold, anything like that on his altars, right? 
So we know he's talking about that. But there's some serious instructions here that can't be taken lightly. There's things that we don't think about much when we talk about altars, and maybe that's why, maybe that's why we're having to cover it today. Uh, I know for me, like, like there was some rhema stuff happening here for me, just in understanding why God does what God does. <clears throat> we know God didn't want gold and silver statues on his altar. That is said. We also know he asked for an altar of earth. Now, what does that mean? I almost called the whole sermon that just because it was like, that's a cool sounding thing. <clears throat> I want an altar of earth. Like the whole earth? Or do you mean like dirt? You mean like, what do you mean? You know, uh, it means he wanted something natural. According to verse 25, God drops the idea of building it with stones. He goes, if you build it with stones, right? But it, but it can't be built specifically with hewn stones. Now, how many had heard of that word? Not me, by the way. I, I had never heard of that word. Uh, a few of you, awesome. I'm not a mason guy, so I don't know. I, I mean, I can tell that some rocks look different than others. That's about it, you know. Uh, I know caliche rocks. We used to throw them all the time at the mailbox. And I can tell granite. That was about the, that's the extent of my rock business, you know. Austin Stone, I don't know what that looks like because I live out here, but uh, that's about the extent of my, my masonry. So, like, um, I, looked at, I looked up the word and I'd studied it, and it basically means untouched or natural. Hewn means untouched or natural. A hewn stone is a stone that's never seen the mark of a hammer or a chisel or any other tool which to sculpt stone. The implication that many theologians believe that God declared this specifically to help the children of Israel to avoid the second commandment, creating images or worshiping images made by their own hands. I was thinking about how easy to fall into that. And I, and I was looking at scripture. Isaiah in chapter 44 talks about this slippery slope. Uh, and this is a very interesting, uh, it's, in, it's around verse 9. And it goes all the way into 13. I'm going to kind of cherry pick a little bit. I'm just going to read verse 9, then I'm going to read 12 and 13. It says, all who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. And then he starts to reveal who are these guys, right? 12 and 13. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. The slope is slippery. From the work of our hands into idolatry. And... It made me, I'm just going to be as honest as I can. In reading the scriptures, it was kind of a gut chance, a gut check, right? To the extravagance we place in buildings. I was thinking about this, man. It's, there's like this, I think God knows our hearts. And if, I don't want to say if our hearts aren't right, but the things that we build to represent God, that's a dangerous thing. That's a dangerous thing. Our God is a humble God. Sure, he looks scary. As a thick, dark cloud of glory. But in Christ, we see his humility and his meekness, right? In his choice for an altar, we kind of see the same thing, right? He, he isn't a God that's, uh, uh, that says one thing and then is another. He asks humility from us because he is humble, right? He leads us in the example. If you think about it, he is the Lord of glory, and yet he leads by example so that when people see us, like in the book of Acts, it can be said that we've seen Jesus, right? We're humble as well. We don't need all the glory because it's enough. We, we revel in his. We don't, we don't need all that. We, we act like Jesus, right? And when you look at, uh, like that word hewn, one of the things that it goes on to, uh, one, is it, one of the things it goes on to explain too is that it, that word also kind of in the Hebrew means like a self-intelligence to it, like when they start to mark it and they start to wear it down and it starts to take shape, what we end up idolizing is the altar itself. And that's the careful line that they're implying here. He's like, I don't want it to look like something you made and you built. I want it to look like as natural as it can be, as humble as it can be. It might not look like much because the altar isn't half as important as what's on it. That's, that's the thing he's trying to say. It makes me start thinking about like, I started thinking about like our altars here. I was like, man, we fashion them, we put them together. Like, I, I just can't. I, I mean, can I be honest, man? Like, I'm just, I'm just trying to be honest. Like, I was a gut check for me. Like, going, Lord, I hope you know. Like, I didn't, I didn't think about that. 
You know, I didn't I didn't think when I was doing that that I was making anything like that. I don't think it's like that, but man, it, it put me in the check where like there should be self-reflection. When you read the Bible, you should have gut checks. And if the pastor isn't having one, guess what? The people aren't either. So I mean, I, I, I know for me that when I read this, I was like, man, God really takes serious his altars and where we come and, and where he meets us, right? He takes that really, really serious because of what's on them, right? Uh, and, and he even tells us here, right, what kind of altar this is and what's going to be on. He says this was something and that people had already practiced anyway, right, though it was perverted by idolatry. Uh, but the Israelites had some understanding of what this was. God's altar required a burnt offering and a peace offering. God goes as far as to say it's going to be sheep and oxen, right? The idea of atonement now for the first time is going to begin. Right? In a big sense, right? In a, in, a, in a gigantic mosaic law is going to create the Old Testament church. God walked with Abraham. We see altars before that. But when it becomes to like, this is about to be a standard practice that's going to happen for the rest of their lives. Right? God is creating the Old Testament church here. And the law is being introduced to teach them what depravity is in their own sense. To teach them how sinful they are. How holy God is. It's teaching them in this moment right now. You're going to build this altar. This altar is going to bridge the gap between you and me. That's what he's doing. He's setting it all up. Setting up the idea for atonement. And, and, and what are they atoning for? Well, for sin, right? There has to be an atonement for sin. Uh, uh, Paul made it clear the wages of sin is death then there must be an atonement. Sin is easy to understand. It's an act of offense against God in thought, word, or deed. And the Bible, again, quoting from Romans, goes as far as to say, a sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So we've all sinned and we must all be atoned for. Here's where God is going to introduce this idea, the severity of sin, the, the, what it's going to cost. And what is it? It's blood, bloodshed. That's, what's, that's the atone, man. Blood. There must be something innocent and pure sacrificed to atone for what is guilty and impure. The cost of sin biblically has always been blood. There's no way around it. In this, we see the extreme consequences for our sin. In the Old Testament, we were atoned for by the blood of animals. Sheep, lamb, oxen, calves, turtle doves. I mean, it, the list kind of grows as they get more starts to really show you like how bad your sin is like man there's just not enough animals we got to include some more animals than just sheep and oxen because you guys are like expert sinners right i mean seriously i mean you know that's just how it is right and, but in the new testament we see god's plan in its entirety to wipe out all sin with the sacrifice of jesus that's what this is leading us to they don't, they don't know that yet but it's it's preparing the way the apostle john in his letters to the church proclaimed that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And if this isn't even more like mind-blowing, do you realize that Calvary is God's altar? Do you realize that? God had need for an altar, and he pushed men to, to make one, and they put his own son on there, and that even God at one point in his eternity needed an altar? That's crazy when you start to think about it. And what was his altar? Man, just wood. Wood. Put him on the wood, man. Sacrifice the lamb. That's crazy when you think that even God built an altar. That Calvary is an altar. God takes altars seriously. They're holy places. One of the last things he says on the subject is, you shall not go up by the steps to my altar. That your nakedness... Not be exposed. Praise God. Who wants to see nakedness at the altar? I'll tell you. That's a strange thing, right? I mean, I thought it was strange. I didn't understand it. I was like, nakedness at the altar. That's some weird stuff going on. I don't, like, I have to understand this, right? Uh, so I had to do some study and kind of see what that meant because it shows up here. According to theologians on this issue, right? And I think we can kind of get this. Priests wore these flowing garments that were long but open in the bottom, much like traditional robes that you're going to see men wearing in the Middle East, right? It's not a dress. It's a long shirt, right? But they didn't have the pants, so it was like all the way down, right? And uh, uh, also, since the law of God was supposed to express the holiness and the sacredness of God, God was creating practices that were going to set them apart from other pagan nations. 
So according to, to one theologian, sexual perversion was widely practiced by the surrounding pagan nations like the Egyptians, including their practices even in worship. The commandment in this verse to keep the altar at ground level, right, serves to one, prevent the Israelites from creating an altar high off the ground in attempts to reach God physically, right, like the pagans, and two, to prevent the, incident, the indecent exposure of the priest to a place of worship, right? Because there is steps, and people are down low. If we put the altar up high and the priests are going up low, then everybody down below gets a picture they don't. It's not that holy. That's not that great. I, I, I giggled a little. I'm, I'm like a kid when I read some of that. I was like, whoa, that's highly inappropriate, <laughs> right? Like, that's a church service that our kids were like, Cover your eyes. Like, we're covering both our eyes on this one. Right? So God is saying, listen, don't, you, don't place the altar like where you're walking up and trying to push this thing up high where we worship the altar, by the way. Right? The altar is not what's to be worshipped. It's the reason why there's no silver or gold. It's the reason why we don't place it up high. No, the altar is where we come low. The altar is where we bow low. We come low. We make ourselves low. We realize we need help. We get down on our knees. Right? And, you know, one of the things when I was reading this about the whole negative, i got to be honest with you, stuff like, you read stuff like that and you wonder, what, like, we probably should just change stuff. Like, that's just, no, no. Nobody should see other people with nakedness trying to do stuff about church, right? Um, and, and I'm so glad we've gotten far away from that custom, you know, even today, right? Um, I think after seeing, I, I think after seeing a big, thick, thundering and lightning cloud on the mountain, I would have just like, you know, it's, we're time for a wardrobe change. And uh, we probably should just wear pants now. Everybody wears pants. Um, I'm just saying that would have scared me. Like, I, I was thinking about this when we, we started talking about Moses and we started talking about him first going up. And Joy pulls the song, Show Me Your Glory. And, the, and you know, and, and she says, she says uh, I'm not afraid. I was like, liar. There's no way you're not afraid. You're not afraid because you've never seen God show up on a mountain uh, uh, in thick clouds. Like, I'm going to tell you as a guy who's been in lightning and thunder and hailstorms at 12,800 feet while I'm camping, you don't want to be in it. And Moses is like, oh, it's time for me to go. No, it ain't, Moses. You better come on back down. You're going to die of hypothermia up there, man. The hail's going to kill you. That, do you not see that light? I'm telling you, my buddies, they went and climbed the mountain, and the clouds caught them up there, right? And the interesting thing about it is they tell an awesome story. Uh, my friend John Kozowski, he was my squad leader uh, in, uh, in the Marine Corps, and uh, he was like, man, that lightning came. He goes, and me and Eric, we just took off running as fast as we could, right? By the way, it took him like four and a half, five hours to get up the mountain. It took him an hour and a half to come back down, right? So they're <laughs> running, and he goes, and when the lightning started to hit, you know, and the clouds are, and you're in the clouds when the lightning's going off, you know, on top of the mountain at 14,000 feet. He goes, he goes, man, I saw this hole and I ducked in there and I looked back in the hole and there was like a skeleton in the hole. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm getting, I'm not staying here. <laughs> and he took off running down. I mean, it was a great story, right? But I'm going to tell you something. So you see Moses up there and you think about this picture. This is the thing I think of. I think of that story, right? And I think about how Moses is up there and he's just like, 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 all right, God is coming. You stay at the base. I'm like, I'm good. I am good at the base. And Moses is like, I got to go talk with God. And then you just see the lightning and the thunder. And then he comes back down. And this is what God said. Like, I believe that God said that because you somehow survived it. So, I mean, like, I, I think, oh, I'm not afraid. Liar. <laughs> I, I'm like, how can you respect God and not be afraid? The fear of God is wisdom. You should be afraid. You should be terrified. Listen, I'd like to think I believe with all my heart God has forgiven me, but make no mistake. If God approaches me like Jesus, I might not be afraid. God approaches me like thunder and lightning and clouds. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to switch the pants. I'm going to wear pants. I'm going to change my clothes. Last thing I want to deal with, I'm going to back it up a bit and just talk about altars in general. I think this is the thing, what we spoke, like this is what he's talking to with Egypt. But he's also setting a precedence for the idea of what he wants around an altar. There's no doubt God is going to maintain altars. Jesus found an altar at Gethsemane. Jesus found an altar at, um, uh, uh, at the, golly, in the garden when he's praying. There's an altar there. You know, they always had that picture of him on the stone praying. What do you think that is? 
It's a hewn stone, right? A stone that hadn't been touched by man. It's just sitting there. And he leans over it and he prays. And there lies the altar of God right there. I always think about the Mount of Olives. Like, man, where place you go? I'll go to the Mount of Olives. Not that I want to appreciate Calvary all, but the Mount of Olives where Jesus prayed. Man, God hear him in his prayer. How about the one where Peter and them, they go up and see him on the top and he goes and prays and it looks like heaven comes down and Moses and everybody's there. Oh, let's go there. I mean, these are the altars where Jesus made altars, right? And there's things, what's neat about those kind of things, there's nothing there. There's no physical altar like we understand an altar to be there, right? But that's the idea of altars. God, when you, when you really look at it, what he was trying to teach the, 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 uh, the Israelites is that the things that we make with our hands have to be very careful about what we do there. Because if you're not careful, and I can tell you this for a fact, there's a lot of churches, you start moving those benches out of their church, got to be careful there. Because the bench isn't what makes God meet you. We could destroy these tomorrow. God will still be in this place. These will still be the altars. The altars aren't made with human hands. And he's really specific here about it not being made with human hands. Like, and that's not for his benefit, it's for yours. So that if you're not careful, you don't make something religious that was never meant to be religious. This is where I get scared for us in our buildings and our decorations and things. If we're not careful, we're, we're clinging on to the wrong things. And you know, the funny thing is, is like, uh, not to hit on sports on purpose, but I'm going to tell you, I'm a guy who's folded my hat inside out to win a baseball game. <laughs> Rally cap. And the superstitions that come from us just living life. It's easy to spot it in sports, but we all have them a little. Well, every time I do it this way, it always works out good for me, so I'm always going to do it this way. That's nonsense. It's nonsense. But if we're not careful, that's what these things become. You know, in the church, we call them sacred cows or, oh, man, you're riding a dead horse. Listen, everybody rides dead horses once in a while. But make no mistake, we worship the wrong things sometimes. And too often we're worshiping the things that we made with our own hands. Ministries will come and go, but the ministry of God is here forever. The gates of hell can't prevail against the church. Do you think your ministry is going to tear us all down? Come on. You think your failures or successes are going to be the things that carries God to the end? You think too highly of yourself. You know, one thing the Lord has been convicting me lately, I'm not even on my notes right now, but the one thing the Lord has been convicting me lately is, is am I okay if, with being a nobody? Because I don't think I've ever tried just to be a nobody. And just being honest in my life. Like I know that the first years of my ministry here, I sure didn't try to be a nobody. I met everybody I could in this town on purpose. I tried to have my name known everywhere I possibly could so that, so that I could have access and network to different places. And I can tell you there's a lot of meetings that occur just amongst pastors where they promote networking. And that's your whole job is to be there so you can network with somebody else that'll get you into a door, somebody else. Because if you, if you can network, then you can get influence, and influence is what makes changes. And where that can go crazy is you forget that who actually opens doors. You forget who really makes a voice, whose real voice is actually the one they're listening to. That's why I, I never have I ever been more convicted about growth than in the last five years. And what, here's how. I had the arrogance to presume that the things that I did or the things that I said were what grew the church. Truthfully. I mean, by the way, why do you think they sell Bible studies? Why do you think churches have conferences and these men have conferences? You think it's just so they can talk about Jesus? You think pastors don't talk about Jesus all the time? No, you go to learn how to grow your church because what they're doing works, so you try to use what they're doing and make it work. The golden calf's just changed. It's just changed. And the irony, I told Joy, I said, I think we're going to get to heaven. I really do. And we're going to see how much folly, you know, how much folly all that was. That it was always. You ever notice in the book of Acts, it never says that what the apostles did were growing the church. It says that God added to their numbers daily. They never made the mistake that we have. They never. Like, you can go buy a book right now on how to grow your church. Go look it up on Amazon. There'd be like a hundred of them. Hundreds. How to grow your church. What you should do. How to get your invite team better. How to get this better. How to get, I mean, it's all out there, right? But the arrogance just presumes is that you think because somebody says hello at the door, like that's it. That's the thing that's going to make them. Listen, man, a guy's witness to me. I'm here today because a guy had the audacity while he was smoking weed, witness to me about Jesus because he wasn't fully sanctified yet. 
Can I tell you, he's not smoking weed today, and he doesn't drink, or he doesn't do any of those things now. He serves the Lord now, okay? But even at that time, God was using somebody like that to get to me. He didn't use the church to get to me. Those guys are too mean. <laughs> he, he used a broken person to reach a broken person. And God is, I think that's the folly of us. And I think when I read about the altars, I'm like more convicted of it than ever that God doesn't need my help. Can I be nobody for God? Am I, am I, is it okay if... I remember preaching in here to, just to show you the, the journey. Being so angry uh, with the 7,000 that have yet to bow knee with Elijah. You've heard me preaching in here. I guarantee you, whether you realize it or not, I preach like the problem. You know, I preach like, oh, man, what makes me so furious is that Elijah is the only one speaking up saying something. Now, I still think that way at times. We're like, man, where's those other 7,000? God's like, oh, there's 7,000 yet to bow knee. Well, where are they? I'm the one putting my life on the line, man, in front of Ahab, you know? But I love the fact that the arrogance that we see in Elijah, you know, is where I've come back to now. Like, I related more to Elijah going, well, I'm still frustrated, God. I'm the only one here, right? But then on the flip side, God says, you're not the only one. You're not the only one. These others, it wasn't their call. You're the one that's called to do this. I've called you to go out and be the voice. But these other guys, you know what they've been doing? They've been praying the whole time for somebody to, to do this, for it to be their calling, for it to be something. There's 7,000 of yet to bow knee. Well, they're nobody. I haven't heard of them. I know. I know they're nobody. But they actually are somebody because you know what they had? They had the, ear of, they had the ears of God. That's something. My gosh, man, if we had 7,000 people here in America that the ears of God right now, that if they just started praying and those 7,000, they could move to it. To, think about 7,000 people prayed till it wrecked Elijah's life. This 7,000, they've been around probably before Elijah, praying and praying and praying, God, we need help. You've got to send us somebody. Da, 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 da. Meantime, God's raising up this little baby to become Elijah, right? This guy that's going to believe God in such a way, it's like, I don't care. I'll just die for you, God. I'll just go out here and say this, and this is going to definitely get me killed. You know? And, and a man like Elijah is born in prayer, in the prayer of 7,000 nobodies. That's the journey. That's the journey. And reading stuff like this this morning about altars and how God wants altars to be so simple so you, that you just come to this idea and realize so much so how none of this is going to be the work of our hands. It was all his. It was all his. So let's... Altars in, altars in general, before I get too far out and just keep going. Um, God told Moses to make altars in every place where I caused my name to be remembered, where I came to you and blessed you. Altars are always synonymous with where we've encountered God and have been blessed by God. Wherever that is, that's where your altar is. At Mount Sinai, Moses met God at the burning bush altar. Again, for, he goes up where? To the altar. Doesn't see the burning bush there this time. Now he sees the burning clouds, right? Ten commandments come out. Altar. At Mount Carmel, Elijah does what? He, he takes hewn stones. Remember, they've got this whole nice elaborate thing that they're burning on and all this stuff. He just takes stones. Puts them up there, goes, here's the altar of God. Fire comes down from heaven. God made an altar at Calvary, broke the chains of death and hell. I'm pretty sure we all remember that one. So, what are your altars? Have you ever written down those moments? Where were you? What, what you were going through when God showed up and showed out in your life? I remember first hearing the gospel in that gross garage in Terrell with my brother-in-law, who was crazy enough to witness to me. And even though I was engulfed in sin, man, he, God was calling me out of the darkness and into light then. He was loving me when I was the most unlovable. That's how you make, that's how you make preachers, by the way. Like you hit them with hard when they're down the farthest. And I remember getting my first opportunity to preach at Mid-Cities Tabernacle. Reverend Henry Cutbirth, which is Joy's grandfather, he had, I stood behind this uh, crystal clear plexiglass pulpit. It always seemed weird to me. Like 
They had a place you could put your water, but everybody could see it. So it was like very distracting. You get anything out from underneath this altar, like everybody saw it, you know. So I always thought that was kind of strange. But it was my first opportunity to preach in maybe front of like 30 people. Felt like my heart was going to explode. I remember just being so nervous. Uh, I remember feeling so crushed uh, after years of trying to do ministry and failing. Feeling so frustrated with the stubbornness of the church until meeting God at the altar at youth camp in Maypearl. That'll always be an altar for me. I remember blindly following God to Marble Falls. Having the pastor, the only new person I actually knew at the time, leave me within the first six months of being there. Uh, But then I saw God a few months later bring over 600 people to the church so we can hand out over 400 pairs of shoes to kids. And my faith was so small in that moment. This truth. Some of you don't know this. That I struggled to believe that anybody was even going to come. I mean, I talked a real good game in front of people. Like when I remember the church, they were like, how's this going to happen? How are we going to hand out? I mean, listen, first of all, I won't take from the tithes because I realize we're in the red. We're going to do this off an offering. I'll do the tithes. We won't even talk about it. And then after that, we'll take up an offering. We we do well more than enough in the offering to get all the shoes we need to get. But I remember like, I'm telling you, it's going to be great. It's going to be the biggest thing ever. I'm the hype man for sure. But I remember sitting in the front crying. My wife asked me, what's wrong? I'm like, I don't have the faith to believe anybody's going to come. If nobody comes, here's the audacity of my sin. I'm thinking if nobody comes, I'm the biggest liar on the face of the planet. My reputation, everything I said about God is all for nothing. Like, God, you better show up and show out because I already fronted you. I wrote the check for you, God. Like, you better show up, you know. And I felt like it was a God thing, but even in that moment, I, I struggled, man. And then I remember thinking, man, some pastor I turned out to be. How am I going to lead others into faith if I can't even lead myself? I cried a lot in the altars after that. But God didn't bring people because I was faithful or because I prayed or because I trusted him. He brought people because that's his heart. In the altar there at First Assembly here in Moral Falls, I came to know God is the God who wants me to know him. And since that time, this whole city's become an altar to me. So some places are more dear than others for sure. And come on, man, the Tabor house is an altar for me. My wife's going to love that altar pool. <laughs> but truthfully, it was, the, it was where I remember we sat around the table and we talked about, I remember coming to Eric and Mark and uh, Jared and saying, hey, I don't know where all this is going to lead, but I think God's calling me to do something more here. And uh, we were all dumb enough to try it. And here we are still today. But it, it didn't begin as a church plant. It began as an exodus. We knew we were headed somewhere. We knew that these ideas about returning and about changing some of the things that we had seen over the years, all of us had experienced, not at first assembly, but all our lives seen with church. You know? One of the things I was, I, I got to see, uh, some of you know her, Dana Bernie. I saw her the other day at HB. She was asking me about the church here. And I said, you know, one of the things that I think I'm most happy about is uh, I saw my brother four times last year. That's not what I'm happy about. That's just where I'm starting, okay? I saw my brother four times, but you know when I saw my brother? It's like we never grow up. It's like we just pick right back up where we left off. You know, my brother's not all that saved at times. I'm recording this, so I'm going to be <laughs> smart about it. But, but I know he loves Jesus. I wish he went to church a little bit more. But, he, but even then, he's my brother. I love him. I know that I'm a good influence for him. I don't want to say things hurtful. I don't want to be mean to him. I don't want to be any of those things. I want to love him every time I see him and accept him just as he is. I hope he makes it to heaven. I don't get to control that, right? But he's my brother. I love him. Why do we treat people any different? If that's what real family's like, then what is church family if it's not like some of that? So that when I see people, man, we pick up right where we left off. Why can't it be that way? Why does it have to be? Well, you go here and I go here. Why does it have to be like that? But it has been. So there were, there were things like that that we saw that were like, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't even be a part of that anymore. Why can't we just be family? And you know what? When family gets together, it's like we've always been together. Amen? Man, isn't that a nice thing? That you can, like, you can like not be here for a while. And you know what? I know we all want them to be here. We want people to be here. But on the flip side is, is welcome to family. Family's not perfect. Family's messy, by the way. Anybody else know that? Yeah. Family's messy, man. But that's what, love is the only way to conquer those things. Love is the only way to conquer those things. 
That's what, that's what brings us to the altars. We bring us back to the lowest place, right? Where we can remember. That's what Mosaic started out as. We wanted to be an exodus, a return back to God, return to something more biblical, right? Tea time, big altar for me. Big altar for me. I didn't even ask tea time if we could ever meet there. Other people arranged that for us. God was opening doors without us even having to ask. Right? At tea time, we saw some of our first baptisms. We baptized in here, but come on, man. We've seen some baptism at tea time. Man, when you've been baptized at a restaurant, you know it. <laughs> right? We saw some of our first salvations in, at tea time. Tea time, man. And now we're here in this place, and this place really is becoming an altar before our very eyes. But as to what we sacrifice on these altars, I read a good quote from a pastor named Steve Sweetman, which I'd, I'd never heard of, but in studying and reading this, he does it a really good credit. He said this, the altar is spiritual and invisible, and we are the sacrifice placed on the altar. Salvation is not just about believing in a historical Jesus. It's about giving yourself sacrificially to him. I'd suggest that if you don't have some kind of struggle or conflict as you make your sacrifice, then you might not actually be sacrificing yourself. It's good. The very nature of a sacrifice suggests that some kind of conflict and pain. In this case, the main conflict is between your will and God's will. Giving up your will can be mentally and emotionally painful at times. The real altar for us New Testament Christians today is that invisible altar that we can access at any time and in any place. It's that spiritual place where we give our wills to Jesus to be burned up in the fire of the Holy Spirit. Each day we have many opportunities to come to this altar and choose Jesus' ways over ours in whatever situation that faces us. When we choose his way over ours, we are in fact offering our lives again on God's invisible altar as an act of New Testament worship. That is the best definition I think I've read about the altar today. You want to know what it is? It is you coming low, placing yourself on it, saying, not my will, but thine be done. And in that way, we mimic Christ. So I'm going to ask you again, as Reese is going to come up and help me, where are your altars? If you don't know, that's a problem we have to have a discussion about. Amen. And let's worship the Lord.